World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone who studies Civil War soldiers, their motivations, their opinions, their experiences, their memories, almost always focuses on the large cohort who joined during the Raj Militaire of 1861, the fury that swept volunteers into the ranks of both sides after Fort Sumter. But some soldiers held back only to join later. What brought them in? Why did they stay? How did they fight? Were they different from the boys of 1861? Those are the questions we'll explore today with our guest, Dr. Kenneth W. No, author of Reluctant Rebels, the Confederates who joined the Army after 1861. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a sunny Friday afternoon, October 8, 2010. It's Perryville Day, a day uh, dear to the heart of some Civil War scholars, our guest today and myself among them. Uh, but before we talk to him, a reminder that I'm speaking for myself, not for East Carolina University. My guest will no doubt not represent the views of his university, except perhaps coincidentally. Uh, we're all speaking for ourselves, as always, on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is a beautiful afternoon after the long week of rain that uh, Eastern Carolina and the whole Eastern Seaboard experienced uh, the week before which was good because it's county fair week here in Pitt County. And last night I had the pleasure of taking my daughter and one of her friends to the Pitt County Fair, uh, of which by far the most entertaining part for me was the theme of this year's fair, which was it's time for fair time. If I were making it up, it wouldn't be funny, but it is in fact time for fair time. I'm thinking of using it for the show. It's time for Civil War talk radio time but I guess it's already been taken. I can't use it. So 
we'll move on. Uh, on Civil War Talk Radio Time, we will have some very interesting guests in the weeks ahead. We'll be talking uh, to the author of a new book about John Bell Hood. We'll be talking to the uh, site historian at uh, Chickamauga. And we'll, in weeks ahead, be talking to people who've written about Lee, about Lincoln, uh, about uh, various other important topics. But today we have a guest who was last on the show five years ago, uh, almost to the day, the same uh, uh, first week, second week, I guess, of October of 2005. Uh, he is Kenneth W. No, professor of history at Auburn University. Ken, are you there? I am there. Hi, Welcome. Jerry. How are you? Good. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, and happy 148th anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. Perryville is uh, an important, uh, I sometimes introduce to the students as the most important battle that you've never heard of. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's changing. People are hearing of it. As well, long I think it's it. true. I think the expansion of the park is also drawing a lot of people there. And it's, it's really an experience that's spreading by word of mouth. It is. I'd, I'd, I'd like people to hear about it. I would not want land developers to hear about it, however, because that park is one of the most uh, authentic, uh, not just the park, but the whole surrounding area uh, still looks very much as it did in 1862. We had a real fright last year when a local developer wanted to uh, do some building, at least in the view shed. Luckily, uh, the local county board of supervisors stopped that, but there's always a threat. And as I was saying a few months ago, uh, elsewhere, when land is in danger in Perryville, where folks have done such a marvelous job of protecting it, battlefield land is still endangered everywhere. It's really true, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners uh, already uh, belong to uh, uh, various preservation societies or contribute to uh, uh, the Civil War battlefield preservation movement in different ways by writing letters or contributing, and uh, it is a good cause. I. Uh, sent a few dollars for the Perryville campaign from the uh, uh, oh, it must have been the Civil War Preservation Trust, I think. Uh, I, I admit I get mail from them on a weekly basis, and I cannot save every battlefield individually, but for Perryville, I got out the checkbook. Um, the Well, the first thing uh, that I cannot resist doing, the same thing I did the last time you were on five years ago, which is to uh, just imagine the glee with which students who know their James Bond would would address you in class. You know, Doctor No, uh, uh, as a Bond villain. Um, do you still do you get any of that, or is that so far in our collective past that it's uh, the students don't know? rapidly. It really uh, is. I, I find that fewer and fewer students must watch TBS or wherever they're watching <laughs> these days because the, the older graduate students certainly know it. Love uh, a chuckle or two, but the undergraduates just sort of stare at me when I mention it. I've been yeah. thinking about actually running clips from the movie, just that, get it all that, started up again. That that would do that. As I was saying to my friend Jim Goldfinger the other day, it just uh, no, just kidding. Um, well, the uh, last time we talked about uh, your 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 fine book on, on Perryville, the grand havoc of battle. And in that interview, you mentioned the project you were working on, which turns out to be the uh, book I'm looking at right here, Reluctant Rebels, the Confederates Who Joined the Army After 1861. Uh, this book analyzes 
uh, as I said in the introduction, why, uh, who joined and why. And uh, I want to ask you about all those questions, but I wanted to start with an observation and, and get your comments on it, which is that this book is highly historiographical in a way that a lot of books are not. And by, by that I mean on, on this show particularly, I often interview people who are lawyers, doctors, uh, plumbers, uh, with a, a Civil War interest, and they've researched uh, the bejeebers out of some particular battle and, and written a book showing where every regiment was at a given moment. And I like these books, and I, I read them, but they focus exclusively on the primary sources. They don't write anything about what other authors had to say about it. They go right to the uh, the origins, whereas in your book, in almost every chapter, you reference other historians and what they've written about uh, uh, Civil War veterans, particularly Confederate soldiers, uh, you reference their interpretations and then, then compare them to what you've found. And after reading so many books that don't do that, I found this quite striking. Uh, did you see this as a conscious thing to do, to, to, uh, to be so explicitly historiographical? I did. I did. There's a literature on why soldiers fought that goes back in some ways to the memoirs and regimental histories that they wrote themselves. But certainly since Bell Wiley in the 1940s and 50s, we've had various historians write about that question in various ways. My sense was that nearly all of them were focusing on that group of men, a little over half in the Confederate Army, who enlisted in 1861. What I wanted to do was look at those who enlisted later but it struck me that what I had to say would make no sense unless I was able to compare the men I was studying to those who had enlisted in 1861, and to also deal with this, those historiographical arguments about why men fought. You know, some historians are arguing that ideology was very important; others looking at sociocultural reasons. So I found myself in the first chapter, really, writing more historiography than I planned, or in some ways even wanted to. In fact, I have to admit, when I sent the manuscript off to the publisher, I thought, surely they're going to tell me to take all this out. And I was mounting all sorts of arguments why I thought it had to be in there. I was very pleased that they did not. Well, I, I, I can recall having my graduate advisor say, you know, you don't need all this historiography in here. Only other grad students care about this. But I would say that when I read um when i read this book especially this introduction i was thrilled because so many of the books you reference uh linderman's embattled courage uh, reed mitchell the, the vacant chair and civil war uh soldiers uh, uh bell wiley that you mentioned john lynn's work on, on the uh, french soldiers uh these are among the books that got me interested uh they were among my favorites all along and and so you really do cite yourself in this literature uh i wonder if that's maybe why the uh that these are such interesting books that's why your publisher thought this was well advised to keep it in possibly possibly that's a literature that's always influenced me too i remember when i was still in grad school at the university of illinois reading Linderman and going out to dinner that night with my wife at, I think, the Bonanza Steakhouse, which was a big night for us in grad school. Oh, yeah. That's... And just boring her to death talking about <laughs> this, this book, all of these insights. So I've been interested in that soldier literature ever since. I think, too, 
I don't know if this was consciously or subconsciously. A lot of that goes back to when I first conceived a project. As I explain in the book, the notion of writing about these soldiers really came up in 2001 when Gary Gallagher and Paul Finkelman invited me to Washington as part of a big conference they had put together at Library of Congress. My job was to comment on a paper that Joe Gladder was giving on Civil War soldiers. And for listeners who've never been to an academic conference, what essentially happens is that one person will get up and read a paper and then somebody else will stand up and say what's wrong with it. I couldn't find anything wrong with Joe's paper. I thought it was marvelous. I thought he summed up the existing literature so well that I really was in some despair for a couple of days, <laughs> wondering what on earth I was going to say at you know the Library of Congress. This was a pretty major venue. But it struck me that there were problems with literature, that the literature did tend to focus on early enlistees. Some people, James McPherson comes to mind, is very open about that. Others are not. You have to sort of crawl through the notes. What I ended up saying that day in Washington was that we've come to believe that we have a well-developed literature about why soldiers fought, when indeed what we have is a well-developed literature about why roughly half of soldiers fought. Until we look at the later enlisters, as I ended up calling them, because I couldn't think of anything better, uh, conscript substitutes, until we looked at all of those men, we really wouldn't have a well-rounded sense of the soldier experience. So I had that literature in mind really from the time I started doing the research, and I found myself constantly uh, comparing my findings to what Linderman had said, what McPherson had said, what Randall Jimerson had said, what Chandra Manning was saying, and so forth. And it just struck me that for the reader to understand any significance of what I was saying, they needed to know what I was bouncing off of. And so that's how the the historiographical sections ended up in the chapters. Uh, I've been online. I've, I've come across at least one reader who really liked my Perryville, but isn't too sure about all this historiographical stuff. So we'll see what others think of it. But it's nice to know that you saw what I was trying to do there. And I do think it's important. Well, as I said, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, not uh, not least because uh, you managed to work uh, my work <laughs> on the Army of the Ohio in there. But uh, even if you had not uh, had the insight to do that, uh, still, it, it it really does uh, locate this research, as, as you say, in the, the body of previous research and points out something that, that again, I think the, the, the sort of self-trained researchers sometimes miss, which is that history interpretations do evolve, and they evolve for good reasons. And, and that it's not just that we get more information, but there are other factors. And, and our, the notion that you can just go back to the primary sources and find the truth is, is somewhat naive. Our findings always fit in context. I have three grad students right now who are preparing for their preliminary examinations. And what I really have them do is read a lot. I have a pretty extensive reading list of about 300 books. But I think it's vital for them, as they begin to think about their dissertations, to be able to place their findings in the context of what we talk about as Civil War historians, what are the major issues, school of thought are you gravitating to? Uh, I think all those are important questions. And, and they are because people have 
uh, a school of thought or a, a viewpoint or an interpretation, uh, whether they know it or not. Uh, and it's much better to, to be aware of, of, of one's theoretical biases than to just uh, assume that they don't exist. But l- let me ask you a question about, about uh, you mentioned Joe Gladder's work that got you started on this. Mm-hmm. His uh, wonderful book on Lee's Army does, in fact, look uh, at not just the early enlisters, but the later ones as well, and, and he even addresses them occasionally. Is that a change that he made after hearing your comments, Steve? I don't know if you know this or, or not. Uh, did you inspire him to, to make sure he included that? or Not to uh, my knowledge. Joe's pretty bright all by himself. I suspect he came <laughs> up with that on his own. Uh, I think it is interesting, having read the book pretty late in the game, that his findings about later enlisters in the Army of Northern Virginia and my findings about later enlisters in all the Confederate armies were pretty close. They were pretty close. I worried a little bit in this book about using statistics. Uh, I thought they were necessary. Certainly I wouldn't have written the book without them. But I really tried to stress in the book that the percentages that I give, so many of soldiers in my sample and so forth, those are really internal roadmaps. They're, they're ways to allow you to compare, say, chapter one to chapter three and see what's more important. I wasn't sure if I could argue that these percentages would have held true for later enlisters as a whole. When Joe's book came out, I mean, one, of, one of the first things I did was crawl through the numbers and discover that his percentages were pretty close to mine, which I think reinforces my argument and hopefully my book reinforces his a little bit. Well, let's talk about your sample. How many soldiers did you look at? Uh, I ended up with 320. I originally wanted to do 400. 400 because if you look at what I think is the the gold standard of these studies, that's McPherson's for Cause and Comrades, uh, that book is based on letters and diaries from roughly 400 soldiers, a little over 400. Uh, Chandra Manning uses a little over 400 Confederates in her study. So I thought if I could get to 400, I would have something that absolutely was comparable. As it turned out, and this did rather surprise me, later enlisters were harder to track down than I thought they would be. Part of that probably has to do with the fact that uh, archival catalogs don't always provide the information that we would want. As you know, you sometimes have to crawl through a lot of collections to find one that you can use. So after several years, I had 320. Uh, I was having difficulty finding more. I suppose I could have if I had spent another four or five years on it. But the men that I was finding toward the end were just reinforcing what I already had. So I ended up with 320 soldiers. I've given some talks uh, around the country so far since the book has come out. There have been some questions about uh, my use of the word sample. And it's not that I had 1,000 soldiers and decided to sample 320. These were 320 men that I could find who Mm -hmm. fit my criteria. They enlisted no earlier than January 1862, and they left letters and diaries, expressions of their thought, and they wrote those things during the war itself because I didn't want to use memoirs, regimental histories, and the like, thinking that perhaps their ideas had changed over time. So I ended up with this database or sample of 320 uh, stretching all the way from uh, Maryland to uh, Texas troops. Now, there's going to be uh, the obvious bias there that these are the ones who, who wrote letters or whose families preserved the letters. Um, is, is there any way to control for that? Well, I think 
It depends on the question. It depends on the question. If you're trying to find out economic data, if the focus is to find out about average land holding, that sort of thing, then you compile a list of names from muster rolls and you match them up to the census and you do that. What I ended up doing, though, was embarking on a project that was about thought, was about motivation, was about men explaining this is why I did what I did. This is why I enlisted when I did. This is why I thought about deserting. This is what mattered to me. And for that, I needed those traditional sources of letters and diaries. So in the end, what I ended up doing was essentially what all of those historians had done before me, which is to compile a lot of information from soldiers and try to derive some sense of it. So it's not a perfect sample. It's, it's certainly not a perfect sample. Um, but it's comparable, I think, to the other books in the literature. And I think that's actually useful, because I think, since I'm essentially using the same techniques that those who went before me used, you really can sit down and compare. You can sit down with McPherson or Lenderman or whomever, and then you can pick up my book and say, okay, let's see what these later guys were doing. Well, we'll do that uh, metaphorically in just a second here. We'll pick up the book and find out what we can learn from these individuals. First, we'll take a short break. We're talking today with Kenneth No, author of Reluctant Rebels. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Life navigation sounds simple enough, but it is really about harnessing the power of your own intuition to focus on the positive things in your life rather than the negative. Host Augustina Torgelson will help you to lead a happier life with less stress. Augustina's vision is to see a world of one community living in harmony with nature and earth. Embark on the journey of self-exploration and new opportunities. Tune in to Life Navigation every Tuesday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kenneth W. No, author of Reluctant Rebels, The Confederates Who Joined the Army After 1861. We talked a little bit in the first segment about the uh, historiographical underpinnings of this book, a book that not only looks at these soldiers and their motivations for joining the army after the war began, but compares them to what other historians have written, people like Linderman and uh, McPherson and Reed Mitchell, Chandra Manning, Aaron Sheehan Dean, uh, numerous others, and compares those findings to the present findings and thus puts this book 
squarely in the, the stream of evolving Civil War interpretation. Uh, I think it's a real strength of the book. Not not all authors do it, and, and not all authors do it well. Uh, but here it is done. And uh, uh, Ken, I was just about to ask, uh, we've talked about how you found things, uh, the sample. Uh, one thing you said in the first segment was interesting, that you did not use regimental histories or memoirs as sources. Uh, those were widely considered uh, and, and are, in fact, primary sources uh, for some purposes. But I've noticed that not just in this book, but a couple others I've, I've seen recently that Scholars seem to be raising the bar that that in much Civil War writing today, a source is not a primary source of wartime thought unless it was written contemporaneously. Uh, Memoirs written 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later uh, are no longer being quoted, uh, at least as evidence of what people thought during the war. Do, Do you see this as a change in the way people are writing Civil War history? I think it's a change to an extent. I mean, in some ways you can go back to Bill Wiley and see that that mindset. Wiley was always suspicious about the later memoirs when he was writing about soldiers. And it's certainly been, in, a, in some ways, controversial. I've been challenged a couple of times, uh, most notably at the Southern Historical Association meeting last year, for not using those topics. But I tend to be suspicious of them for a topic like this. If you take the Perryville book and go through it, you'll see that I used a lot of memoirs and regimental histories. Mm-hmm. I think it's perfectly reasonable to expect men to remember something that happened to them on a battlefield 20 or 30 years before. The sources aren't perfect. Whenever the later source contradicted uh, a source written right after the battle, I always use the source right after the battle. But I think especially for a topic that deals with men explaining why they fought, why they fought for the Confederacy, what was important to them about the Confederacy, I thought the contemporary documents were vital. If you think about it, and Linderman actually wrote about this, with some exceptions, the memoirs in the regimental history started coming out in the 1870s and really in the 1880s. So who are you dealing with there? You're dealing with men who are now in their 40s or 50s. They are looking back at their youth. They're looking back at wartime through the lens of, in my case here, Confederate defeat. Reconstruction, redemption, Um, our experiences change the way that we see the world. Uh, By the 1880s, a lot of people were writing in publications like Confederate Veteran that the war had really been fought for states' rights and not slavery, for example. I mean, you certainly saw that with Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis. And I think there's a tendency of people to sort of pick up the zeitgeist of the time. Uh, the way I always explain it to my students in class is this. Uh, in 1974, I was a pretty decent high school football player. Now in 2010, I'm a college prospect. <laughs> I, I really find myself thinking, you know, I was pretty darn good. I could have played in college when in 1974. I don't think I actually thought that was going to happen, and certainly it didn't. So if you throw in that, I just think there's there's something almost, I don't want to say dangerous, but I think we need to be careful about using those later sources in terms of trying to understand how people thought at a given moment. Uh, another example, I published an article a couple of years ago in the Journal uh, of Military History about this ongoing feud bet- between Billy Mahone 
and James Lane that dragged on into the 1880s. And looking very closely at Lane's papers, most of which are here at Auburn, it was easy to see how he was not lying by any means, uh, but sort of changing his story, watching his story evolve as the years passed and as things happened, and especially noting that no one really took his complaints about Mahone seriously until Mahone went to the United States Senate and allied with the Republicans. And suddenly everybody wanted to hear what James Lane had to say about all those horrible things that Billy Mahone had done to him in 1864 and 1865. So what happened in the years after the war, I'm firmly convinced, shaped the way that veterans remembered the war. Have you uh, have you seen Robert Hunt's uh, recent book, uh, The Good Men Who Won the War? I have not. I'll look for it. it it's uh, it's a study of the Army of the Cumberland or Army of the Ohio, uh, Definitely. as we would know it. That uh, uses only regimental histories and memoirs. It's actually a study of their how they remembered the mm-hmm. war and does exactly what you're saying here. It it uses what they wrote in the 1870s and 80s and 90s, not to analyze what happened in the war, but to show how they, how their memories of the war had evolved and, and what they considered important about their wartime experience. Um, it's uh, it, 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 it's striking because it encapsulates everything you just said uh, in, in terms of how people's memories change. Uh, not that they're lying, not that they're distorting things, but that uh, it's how human nature is. Sure, you can go to the Southern Historical Society papers and find James Lane's writings about Spotsylvania or about uh, various moments at Petersburg. And you seem to have a rather straightforward account of what happened. But when you start comparing those accounts to things that he had written earlier or later, uh, what you really start to see is a growing anger toward anyone associated with Mahone's unit. Uh, Outright arguments that were going on between uh, Lane and some of Mahone's brigadiers the stories evolve, and once you start putting those in in context, you start to see a man whose memories of the war, however genuine I think he saw them, uh, were evolving because of things such as the political situation of Reconstruction or or simply the fact that Mahone became a very wealthy man and Lane ended up scrapping around until he finally became an academic at two places very close to my heart, Virginia Tech, and eventually here at Auburn, where he's buried. Hmm. Well, if we look at the sources that, that you looked at, you, as you say, restricted yourself to, to those written during the war mm-hmm. to see what the men thought, uh, what they, they said they thought at the time. Um, let's talk about some of the things you found. The, the classic uh, interpretation, going back to, to Bell Wiley uh, and James McPherson, is that the, the people who enlisted later the Confederate armies were those who had more to lose, older men, married men, slaveholding men. Uh, are they the people who were the, the late enlisters, as you call them? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. When I talk about my late enlisters, there are really two cohorts. First of all, you have young men who legally, legally at least, were not able to enlist in 1861, and they're coming of age during the war. Secondly, and actually the larger group, are men who could have enlisted in 1861, but did not. About half of them were married. About half of them were not. About half of them were farmers. About half of them were not. And in fact, among the officers, 
uh, I was surprised to find as many non-farmers as I did, a lot of shop, shopkeepers, white-collar folks, that sort of thing. Uh, there's been some disagreement about whether later enlisters would be wealthy or not. I remember somebody telling me at a conference that what I was going to find were a lot of poor men who enlisted because they were afraid of the draft. In fact, one of the things that most surprised me about my research was how many slaveholders, or at least men from slaveholding families, that I found in my sample. And I did count the sons of slaveholders, as well as the legal slaveholders themselves, as from the slaveholding class. I think that's fair. Some people have, have disagreed with me on that, but I think that's a justifiable argument. And about one-third of the men in my sample, I think, came from slaveholding families. I say I think because a lot of them did not show up in the census. And I counted men who did not show up in the census as probable non-slaveholders. If you look, just look at the men I found in the census alone, uh, 92 slaveholders out of 209 men, that's 44%. So, Which is much higher than the percentage across the whole Confederacy. It's much higher, whereas that figure of around 31, 32% almost matches exactly the percentage around the Confederacy. And again, it's pretty close to what Joe Gladder found and what Elizabeth Laskin found in her dissertation, uh, which also deals with the Army of Northern Virginia. So what you really had there, at least in terms of slaveholding, and I would argue in other ways as well, age comes to mind, they represented a, a real cross-section of the Confederacy. So the, the, the other classic interpretation uh, that, that one comes across, the, this was a rich man's war but a poor man's fight. Um, if you're seeing large numbers of slaveholders enlisting in the second wave, then, then that's not the case. It's not that, that uh, the rich men are staying home and the poor men are enlisting. No. I mean, here I, agree, I disagree, rather, with, with historians such as David Williams. Uh, I found a lot of slaveholders who were enlisting in 1862, 1863. Uh, sons of slaveholders enlisting even later in the war. I'm thinking about this one poor young man down at Fort Fisher who enlisted on day one, fought in his only battle on day two, and was captured on day three. He had a three-day career. Mm. He was from the slaveholding classes. So why did these people... Jo I guess two joint questions. Why, uh, for those who were old enough to join in 1861, why didn't they join right away? And what changed uh, that, that prompted them to join the Army? In general, I think what happened was this. Growing up in the South, we were often told that Confederate soldiers fought to defend their homes. And that was always expressed in a very simplistic manner. They literally were defending their house and their wives and their kids. Ultimately, I think these later enlisters uh, were not motivated by ideology, particularly, unlike 1861 enlistees. Uh, they were not motivated at the other end by the bounty or, I think, even conscription. These were men who were apparently content to ride out the war as long as it was short. But what they started to see in 1861 and what they saw increasingly into 1862 were Union armies that were moving into parts of the Confederacy. And they were committing what these Confederates would refer to as vandalism, property crimes. Um, there's a certain degree of hatred that is expressed toward the Yankees, but it almost always has to do with taking away slaves, taking away property, uh, despoiling farms and businesses. Very often, the closer the Union Army got to that state, the more likely you were to see these later enlisters finally 
joining up and going off to the army. They saw this disaster approaching, this disaster in blue uniforms. They saw men who were going to come and take their slave away from them, if they were slave owners, take their horses, take their property, despoil them of their seed corn, uh, destroy their houses, essentially destroy their futures. And I think in a much more complicated way, you can put all those together as defense of home, defensive way of life. Uh, Union armies, in their view, had proven themselves to be dangerous, and they had to be stopped literally before they got to my house. I mean, in it's, I don't think it's uh, unfair to say that if somebody asked, uh, do you say slavery was, that these men were fighting for slavery, you, you would say yes, but of course it's, it's more nuanced than that. Uh, but is it safe to say perhaps that uh, well, in fighting for a way of life, that that, that way of life involves uh, protection of the home, involves the role of the, the male in the family, it involves the role of white males vis-a-vis everyone else, mm-hmm. women, children, black people. Um, that, that, uh, so they're fighting for all these things at once. Is, is that Well, uh, they are. They are. They're fighting, and each individual is fighting for probably a different list. In terms of slavery, I found very few, only eight out of 320, who said outright, I am fighting to preserve slavery. But when you read what so many of the others were writing about slavery, it becomes apparent that for them, slavery was just part of a larger social order. And it was that social order that they were trying to preserve. It was a social order that that uh, included slavery. It was a social order that allowed white men like themselves to be, to quote Stephanie McCurry, masters of their own small worlds. Uh, they were fighting for the society that they knew. Slavery was part of that. I, I don't think that we can ignore that. And so you have very few men who say that they're fighting for slavery, but you have a lot of men in my sample who clearly accepted slavery, opposed emancipation, uh, many of them opposed enlisting black Confederate soldiers at the end of the war. Uh, when they talk about depredations committed by Union soldiers, they will often include carrying off our slaves. Uh, so clearly slavery is part of that, that matrix, that larger social world that they saw uh, suddenly in danger. Uh, you mentioned the enlistment of, of con- uh, black soldiers in the Confederacy, and here, of course, I must point out that in your your uh, uh, book on Perryville, you referenced the hundreds of thousands of black Confederates that you encountered. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, it, it's an in-joke for those who have not yeah. uh, followed things online, but uh, there, there's a, a single sentence in your, your book that's been misquoted. and It's been deliberately appears. rewritten and plastered all over the Internet to make it appear that I support the notion of black Confederates throughout the war, when in fact I do not. Uh, did, did you find any uh, black Confederate soldiers in reluctant rebels? Not a one. I did not find them represented. I did not find anybody writing about African Americans as soldiers. I found a lot of people writing about slaves in camp. And that's exactly how they depicted them, as slaves in camp. They were either somebody's individual slave or they're slaves who had been brought in uh, to drive the wagons and whatever. They write a lot about slavery. And it's clear that Confederate armies on the move functioned in part uh, through black labor. But there was no sense of them 
being comrades. There was no sense of them being anything other than what they were, legal slaves. Here at, uh, at Auburn, we have a, a building on campus, Comer Hall. It's named for a former governor of Alabama named Braxton Bragg Comer. I've often wondered why on earth anyone would name their son after Braxton Bragg. <laughs> but he had <laughs> he a, might have been a unionist. He had an elder brother named uh. Wallace, and I, I write about Wallace in the book. Wallace took one of his slaves with him to the Army when he finally went. There's, there's, if you read the letters, which are at uh, the University of North Carolina, there's every reason to think that Wallace Comer actually sort of liked the guy. I mean, he was not a, a cruel slaveholder, as far as I can tell, by any means. He rather had a good relationship, as far as those things go. But Comer always made it clear, and I'm, I can quote him literally in some cases, that he was among the masters, and that this slave was just that, a slave. Uh, not a comrade, not a fellow soldier. Well, I found none of those. It, it's it's hard to kill a misquote once it gets among out on the internet, but hopefully listeners will keep in mind that uh, Kenneth No did not say there was anything uh, to do with black soldiers at Perryville, black Confederates. Uh, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back in just a minute and talk more with Ken No about the reluctant rebels, the soldiers who enlisted after '61, on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. To succeed in life today, you have to respond well to change and be willing to take chances. On Star Style, Be the Star You Are, the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan and her sidekick, daughter Heather Brittany, deliver lessons of success spanning the generations with live interviews with trailblazers, authors, and experts. Join Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany on the Power Hour, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Variety. For positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio, it's Star Style. Be the star you are. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kenneth W. No, author of Reluctant Rebels, The Confederates Who Joined the Army After 1861. And in our previous segment, we talked about what motivated those soldiers to join the Army uh, in the year after the war began. What I'd like to ask you now, Ken, is about uh, the other aspects of, of motivation, as James McPherson has defined them. We've talked about what motivated soldiers to enlist. Uh, what motivate, Once they're in the Army, why did they stay and not desert? And, and most of all, why, what motivated them to fight, to, to hold their ground on the battlefield? Yes, the uh, those are two, two different questions. Combat motivation, as John Lynn originally called it. Mm-hmm. 
In terms of sustaining motivation, why they stayed, again, I think it's, it's complicated, but I would point to three main factors. One I've already mentioned, hatred of the enemy. Secondly, uh, camaraderie, comradeship. Uh, James McPherson is right. Comradeship was very important to these men once they were in uniform. Now, I do put a twist on that based on my reading of these soldiers' letters, that their comrades, more often than not, were people they already knew. They were brothers, brothers-in-law, people from the neighborhood. Uh, in a sense, these men, I think 1861 enlistees did this to an extent. I don't know that mine are particularly all that different. I think they're a little more home-oriented, but in some ways they essentially took bonds that they had created in their antebellum community and they brought those to the army. So comradeship is important. Of course, that's a double-edged sword. Uh, once your friends from home are killed or they get sick or whatever, uh, you lose that motivation. And in fact, what struck me as different about my 1862, 1863, 64 enlistees was that, unlike those who came before, they seem to have a lot more difficulty building ties within the Army. Um, which is not to say that they didn't make friends with, with strangers once they got to the army, but they don't seem to forge those close bonds that we would expect uh, in a military unit. Still, I think comradeship was important, and I think religion was very important. I mean, other than, you know, how's the farm doing and go plant in the North Field, that sort of thing, uh, I had a more percentage of men who wrote about religion than anything else. Religion is clearly a sustaining motivator. Of course, I argue that Again, this, this extreme sort of localism, this home orientation that these men uh, seemed to bring with them meant that, as often as not, uh, instead of participating in those great pan-army revivals that we read about, they seem to have been worshipping, again, in these small kin and neighborhood-related groups back in camp, or very often through their letters, I mean, still trying to maintain that role as the leader of family worship. Uh, hatred. Religion, comradeship, keeps them going. All the factors that we talked about also will help drive men into combat to actually stand in battle line to risk their lives. Uh, one thing that I did note, um, and certainly this isn't true of every soldier I study, but it was true of more than I expected, was how many of them were just desperately eager to prove their manliness, to prove their courage, to prove that you know even though they had enlisted late, they could still be brave men and brave soldiers. Which is to say, after years of historians sort of denigrating Gerald Linderman's work for various reasons, it struck me that in some ways he was right after all about this, the desire to prove courage being at least a factor, if not the factor. I mean, there are, there are problems with the Linderman book in terms of his source material and the number of soldiers he studied and so forth. But I was really struck by how many men, in addition to hating the enemy or, or believing that God was with them or standing next to their brother and their brother-in-law, how many of, of these men just wanted to prove that they were up to it? Now, you frame that in a couple of different ways. One is, is in terms of masculinity, uh, uh, in terms of relations with women, that, that the, these men wanted to prove to their, their women back home or the women they hoped to meet mm -hmm. uh, that they were worthy. But also it's, it's for proving their masculinity to one another, their, their worthiness to be comrades of, of one another. 
And I think both are important. I think both are important. I mean, it's Steve Berry who's argued that what soldiering really was about was, was proving to women that you were brave. Uh, I think there was some of that, but I also think it was very important for these men to prove um, to their, their relatives, to men they had grown up with, and to others that they were, they were brave, capable, masculine men, that they would not run. And that really does echo the, the, what psychologists discovered after the Second World War, that, that the primary group, the, the four, five, six people you, you knew most closely, uh, were the, the focus of the soldier's world, and it was not letting them down that mattered more than, than anything else. And like uh, so many things in my research, that surprised me. I mean, I really did not expect to find that, since in some ways that research has been not discarded, but certainly it's been challenged over but yes, these small groups, these kin and neighborhood-related groups that transferred into companies in the Army now, were, and that, were extremely important. And, and I'd say there your research does differ from, uh, from what people might expect, certainly from the, the, the model going back to Linderman and others, that these bonds are not necessarily forged in combat, but they, they come to the Army. Mm-hmm. If, if you remember the World War II movies, uh, our generation grew up watching. You'd have the platoon with uh, uh, the Polish guy from a northern city and uh, someone from the Bronx and a country boy from Nebraska, a southerner, etc. And they would all be totally alien to one another, but under combat they would become a unit. Exactly. It's closer to what we have now with the reserves and the National Guard over the last, really, 10 years now, I guess. Where everyone already knows each other. Yeah, we've watched National Guard units go off from Auburn or, or down the road in Tuskegee. And these are men who have known each other in many cases all their lives. And now they're serving together in Iraq or in Afghanistan. And in some ways, it's, it's a throwback to uh, the pre-World War II period when units were still being recruited locally. Well, and that's one of the classic dilemmas in military history. You go back to the uh, the, the PALS battalions of the British Army in World mm-hmm. War I, uh, you, or, or the, the, the that town in Virginia that sent a unit uh, to, to Normandy. Uh, uh, that unit gets in a bad place and takes heavy casualties. An entire town loses all its young men in it one day. When I was growing up in Elliston, Virginia, as late as my high school years in the 1970s, people were still mourning the sinking of the USS Wasp, because there had been several local boys who had gone down on the Wasp. It was just one of those crystallizing moments that people in my hometown never really forgot. I suspect it's one of the reasons why my grandfather eventually joined the Navy instead of some other service. And, and yet the, uh, the the United States Army consciously reacted to that in the Vietnam era mm-hmm. by by uh, mixing the units thoroughly, by rotating soldiers out individually so you wouldn't have everybody from one place. And then they had all kinds of small unit cohesion problems. Right. So there's right. no... Uh, the good answer is don't fight wars, but uh, there's no good answer to, to this. Well, you have a mixture right now in Afghanistan. You have a regular army unit that probably has drawn from all over the country, but you also have a National Guard unit that's from a county somewhere. And they all know each other, and they've known each other for years. They went to the same high schools together. Uh, it's a very different dynamic. And I'll be curious to see how historians... Look at our modern wars in the years to come, and what they what they do in terms of those different kinds of unit cohesion. Uh, what what I wonder is how future historians will deal with the sources when uh, so much is electronic and ephemeral today. 
but rather than get off on that, let me ask one uh, uh, sort of last question about these these soldiers. Uh, desertion, the, the last straw. Uh, how many of them, of, of the older enlistees or the, the later enlistees, I should say, uh, couldn't stick it out? Out of my sample of 320, I identified two men who were deserters. That's not to say that some of the other collections uh, didn't involve people who drifted away, and I wasn't able to ever confirm that. But what I really had in my sample were not men who were prone to desert, but men who were often writing home about desertion. But the soldiers in my sample seemed to stick it out until they... They die in battle, or more likely they die in hospital, or they survive until the end of the war. So, and that's contrary, again, to what mm-hmm. people would expect, that, that the later enlistees would be the deserters, would be the uh, those who came in under duress uh, and, and, and weren't as willing. I did not find any evidence of that, and that's exactly how I, I state it. Uh, I don't argue that they were less prone to desert. I certainly don't know that. I just haven't found any evidence that they were more likely desert. Uh, they write about deserters, but I can't tell in many cases you know, when those men enlisted, they don't mention them by name. Desertion was clearly a problem in the Confederate Army. Hmm. Uh, can, can you give a 30-second version of your next project? 30 seconds. I am writing about something that first fascinated me when I was writing the Perryville book. I am writing about the effect of weather Ah. The American Civil War, whether in terms of what happened on the battlefield, whether in terms of what was happening on the home front, uh, particularly those tremendous droughts of 1862 and 1863 that weakened the Confederacy right at the moment when it didn't need weakening. Uh, I'm going to look at the technology of dealing with bad weather. I'm going to look at you know, rubber blankets and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm Could people predict weather? Did they have any technology for that? No. No, they did have various weather stations, official and unofficial, that were set up uh, around the country. Uh, Robert Crick, most notably, has used one uh, on his books of the war, Weather in Virginia. But that just looks things. Yeah, but, I mean, these are all over the place. They're not predicting, though. They're, they're recording, really, in hopes of being able to predict someday. Wow. Well, that sounds very fascinating, and, and I will look forward, uh, we'll all look forward to the, the next book. But for now, uh, listeners will want to get a copy of Reluctant Rebels by Kenneth W. No. Ken, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Jerry. Enjoy the fair. <laughs> will do. Okay. And listeners, hope you will enjoy uh, getting yourself a copy of Reluctant Rebels, the Confederates who joined the Army after 1861. And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 
If you're one of the lucky few that never have to worry about your position, or you just prefer to work for someone else, this message is not for you. If you are worried about future job markets, would like an opportunity to add full-time revenue to your bottom line for part-time work, or have ever wanted to own your own business, you'll want to hear this. Johnny B's Entertainment, the leader in mobile disc jockey entertainment for Arizona over the past 25 years, is expanding its operation nationally and would like to discuss your market's potential for expansion with you as a local owner. Whether economic times are good or bad, people will continue to get married, have birthdays, anniversaries, and corporate parties that require an entertainer. And Johnny B's can provide everything to get you